Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a second to talk to you about 12 Strides and 12 Group Norms for Liberty and Recovery. This is a book by former guest of the show, Asher Azo. And what it is, is a deep dive into libertarianism and 12-step philosophy. Not only do you get to learn about how to apply those principles to your very own life, but you also get to see what it looked like for the recovery community going through lockdowns and the COVID hysteria. Um, Also included at the end of the book is a fictional story about a man in recovery searching for his own son. Um, You can find this book on Amazon, paperback, or it's also available on Kindle. I will include the link to the book in the show notes page for this episode. So please go check it out. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another late episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. I apologize that this didn't get out to you guys on the usual day. Uh, I got the spicy flu again. Yeah, so uh, that was always fun to deal with. Um, You know, whooped my ass pretty thoroughly, but uh, I'm getting back around. I don't know if you can still hear it. I'm a little little congested still, but we're going to be okay. Um, big, big thing happening this weekend, officially launching the out of harm's way needle exchange in Oklahoma city. So if you're listening to this, if you know of anyone in the area that could use, uh, you know, access to clean equipment to a safe supply, I also have Narcan and fentanyl test strips available free of charge. No questions asked. Um, please direct them my way. The Google Voice number for that is 405-295-5167. So, uh, yeah, I just had to put that in there at the beginning. But, um, listen, I got an awesome guest for you guys this week. This is Thomas Queter. Uh, if you have been around Libertarian Party circles, you know him as an awesome candidate. He's running for office out of New York. The guy's been around the party for quite a while, and he's always got such a great story to tell. So I wanted to have him on to kind of talk about about who he is, where he came from, and you know what life has been like for him. And uh, he did not disappoint. So uh, without any further ado, here is Thomas. All right. Hey, Thomas. How's it going? It's going well. Really glad that you could join me this evening, man. I uh, We were talking, you know, beforehand, and uh, you actually gave me some really good advice. I need to start keeping a list. But I remember talking to you on Clubhouse way back when, um, and I think you were like one of the, you were among one of the four conversations I had on that app. And then I, I just stopped using it. But um, I remember you talking about, you know, kind of your own struggles with addiction. And, and you know, we had a really uh, great conversation on ending the war on drugs. And so um, the, I dropped that ball. I should have had you on long ago. But, you know, no time like the present. We got you here now. So, Well, the war on drugs still rages on. It's a oh. word for people, so it should stay in the conversation. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, until that thing is put to bed, we need to keep talking about it. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of wanted to uh, initially uh, here at the beginning a little bit, just kind of throw the ball in your court. And I want to hear about your journey through addiction. Like, how did it start and how did you get out of it? Wow. Um, yeah. It's going to be a bit of a long story. 
That's fine. I like them. So I have brittle bones disease. A technical name is osteogenesis imperfecta. Uh, as far as the doctors that I see, um, when, I, when I was 15, I had the lowest bone density they'd ever seen in this condition. Uh, one of those doctors has since told me he found a lower bone density, but it was a different condition. Um, I had over a thousand fractures by the time I was 16. Uh, when I was eight years old, I tipped my wheelchair over and I broke my humeruses, both of them. Um, that's your upper arm bone. Ooh. And they were green stick fractures, which are kind of jagged and they cause a lot of soft tissue damage. And it, it, it's probably one of the more painful kinds of fractures you can, you can be unfortunate enough to sustain. And mind you, this was both arms and I was eight years old. So we go to the emergency room, and the first thing they do is give me a shot of something called Nubane, which I believe is largely prohibited these days. It, it was an opiate, this tiny little shot right in the belly uh, actually caused uh, uh, my hair did not grow in in that part of my stomach. Whoa. Yep. Wow. Known to cause birth defects when given to women. Um, and they followed that by sending me home with a prescription for codeine. Um, now, again, remember, I was eight years old. Right. Years later, they would finally realize that children have a faster metabolism. Did you know that? The children have fast metabolisms. Yeah, I mean, just just didn't know that uh, per se, but it does, It the logic is there, you know. Right, so uh, children are growing fast, and medical science has long known that our metabolisms work more quickly when we're children. Yeah. If we're metabolizing a drug more quickly, what does that mean? Yeah, you're getting hooked. It means that um, the levels for overdose, the levels for um, psychiatric side effects mm -hmm. are um, lower for children. So if you're if you dose a child like you would dose an adult and you do it by weight, you're still overdosing the child. Uh, I actually discovered some article about the study that, that proved this uh, in 2019, working on Daniel Berman's campaign, seeking the nomination for uh, the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And it turned out that, uh, well, they did this to me when I was eight, it wasn't actually figured out by whatever coincidental lack of logic in the medical community that the children should not be dosed even by weight as high as adults because they take it up quicker. If you're familiar with illicit drugs, let's say heroin, mm -hmm. heroin can be snorted, smoked, and injected. Right. Um, There's not a lot of difference between quite a few of our prescription drugs today and really good heroin. Mm -hmm. I've known um, specifically heroin addicts that uh, prefer OxyContin uh, because 10 or so years ago, you could get an 80 milligram um, OxyContin free of acetaminophen or anything else 
and it's just a little tiny hill. But that's essentially what my friends who were heroin addicts tell me is that it's cheaper and better than street heroin. Street yeah. heroin makes it weaker. Uh, your oxycontin yeah. goes farther. So, you know, I was eight years old. They sent me home with a prescription. We took it by prescription. And by prescription, I was overdosed. Um, oh, God, man. And there, there's a specific episode that I went through once, once the levels of codeine had really come up in my body. Um, so for one, it wasn't doing anything for the pain. It really wasn't. And it was causing a feeling of um, searing hot pins and needles all over my body, head to toe. It was very disturbing sensation, very, um, I guess, torturous is the word. It was driving me insane. And I had a bit of a psychiatric snap, and I ended up banging my head on the wall with both of my humeruses badly broken, trying to make the feeling of coding stop. My God, man. Um, it did stop taking that at that time. But as you can imagine, with all of the different perfect bones and several instances of uh, sustaining a hundred fractures in an instant or more, uh, I was prescribed a lot of opiates over the years. Get into your teenage years, and you know you're a teenager, <laughs> and right? Alcohol. Oh yeah. Yeah, that goes with your opiates, doesn't it? Mm. Um. So about the time I was 16, I was at the point of taking 30 or so Vicodin 5 milligrams in a day with a bottle of liquor in a day. And that wasn't to get high or to get messed up in any way. That was to keep my hands steady. That was to keep me um, from suffering withdrawals. Hmm. By the age of 16. And I really need to hammer this home that the opiate addiction and the alcohol addiction do so often go together. Yes. Um, and that's because they're both downers. Mm -hmm. When I was 18. No, I would have, yeah, I wasn't quite 19 when I got home from my first year in college uh, where the alcohol had really gone kind of exponential, right? Uh, I make friends who used to be in the military. Uh, do not try to learn to drink whiskey with the military. <laughs> you will definitely be taught. <laughs> uh. Uh, when I got home, I, I realized the problem I had, you know, th there were other issues going on through that. Uh, I had been promised uh, state aid that didn't actually come through and, and there were some wonky things that happened with that assistance I, I got to college one and a half hours away with no transportation out the phone calls you get from the aid office make it sound like you're going to be on the street if you don't sign that loan or go home and for me in my situation a very obvious situation right um right right so I almost drop a half is not 
not possible. Uh, my family would have come and gotten me, but they couldn't do it the same day. They work. Uh, and so, well, I was technically incorrect. I would not have been kicked out on the street. I didn't know that. I was 18. I, I'm a farm boy from a small town. I did not understand that. And um, so I, I grind away my life on those college loans like so many people did, right? Yeah. And I, I come from a background where taking debt is not advised, right? In my family in particular, we're against holding debt. Oh, it's almost like maybe we need to elect people who are against holding debt. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my parents didn't believe in credit cards. They made sure that we understood not to believe in credit cards and debt in, in the way that so many people do. So many people get into trouble with that, right? Yes. Um, so at one point through that first year of college, I drank a half a gallon of double sprints. Dude. Three minutes. Dude. Yep. Um, God damn, Thomas. That's, that is insane, dude. Um, and that was alcohol poisoning that went untreated because there was no treatment I could seek. My condition right. means that going to a hospital that doesn't know you personally is a severe risk of death. And so instead of asking for help, I wrote it out. And that was probably probably one of the worst drug experiences I ever had. And it was alcohol, class four narcotic, if I remember correctly. Perfectly legal class four narcotic. I do want to point one thing out though. You know what you never get in your alcohol or your tobacco? Fat. Fentanyl. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Preach on preacher. Yep. And you don't find it in your legal cannabis either. Right. Um, personally, I'm for the full decriminalization of all drugs because I think it will help addicts. Yes. Uh, so I come home from college and I, I'm severely addicted to opiates. I'm severely addicted to not just alcohol, but straight liquor. And I, I decided to detox. And I'm not, while I was naive when it came to whether or not I'd be out on the street if I didn't sign that loan for college, I was not naive at all to the way our health systems, rehab systems and the like handle people and what that would mean for me and my disability. Right. Um, so there was no seeking a treatment center. There was no seeking rehab. I'm in a very rural town. There's no AA or NA. Um, doctors don't want to do more than tell you to quit drinking because it, at that time they wanted to keep prescribing those opiates. Right. Man. Have you been through the DTs with anything severe? Yes. So you're yeah. going to understand what I'm about to discuss. Um, mm -hmm. I figured out real quick that I had mood swings, five-second mood swings. Angry, happy, elated, sad, um, 
yeah. seconds was a different emotion. If there's a yeah. whirlwind, a whirlwind, and you start to hurt inside. Mm-hmm. I, I beat my head on the table, and I'm, I mean literally. I'm not talking figuratively. I hit my head on the table until it bled to stop myself from going and finding a drink. And at that time, going and finding a drink with me, you would also find prescription pills because they were traded like candy. Uh, what color skittle do you want today? Right. Uh, and I, I detoxed myself, and it, it was tough. You should not do that if you're out there and you're hearing this and you're going to go through some serious detox. At least make sure you have a sitter, someone who's been through it, someone who knows it, someone who knows when to call 911. Yeah, because that's hella dangerous too, man. It, it's hella dangerous to go on that alone. It's extremely dangerous. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, opiate withdrawal in particular, and alcohol withdrawal can do this too, uh, causes physical pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, because your body has uh, um, adapted to utilizing the drug. Your mind has adapted to, to having the drug and it craves it. You've, you've grown new receptors in your brain and even throughout your nerve endings in your body. And that, that's part of the reason you get those real physical pains. And then other parts, there are other reasons for that are things like what happens to your GI system when you're heavily into it. Uh, that's got to all switch over. And, you know, I, I'd like to tell you that that was the point that I was clean that I had quit drinking and quit um, using opiates, but it, it wasn't. Mm. Um, one thing that I learned, I got past the opiates faster than I did the alcohol. I would uh, go on to drink for, I've been, I've been sober for seven or eight years and I just turned 39 yesterday. Oh, wow. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. My uh, friend. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it was it was great. I had friends who drove five hours to come. Um, we wow. ate a bunch of seafood and hung out. And, well, we'll talk more about that later. Okay. Um, so what leads people to turning to a drug? There's a lot of things, man. That's well, there is, but I'd like to think there's a few basic summations that that cover a lot of things. Environmental uh, factors, for sure, I would say, are are way up there, right? Like, who do you have in your circle, and who do you not? That and happiness, right? I mean, we're seeking something. We're seeking to feel good. Mm, yeah. Um, a lot of people make that. You know, some of these drugs. Heroin, in particular, if you're injecting, you know, it's that one-time thing, right? You, you do it once, and then, you know, you get sucked in a bit. Yeah. Same with opiates, right? A lot, a lot of the other opiate addiction actually starts with your dentist because they could, at that time, could send you home with a prescription. Um, or, or call your primary to get you a prescription. <clears throat> so we're, we're usually, you know, looking to solve a problem, right? If we're talking about prescription painkillers, you and your doctor are, well, maybe you're going to have a good doctor who met well your um, 
you're looking to solve the problem of pain. But we're, we're doing so without thinking or realizing that the withdrawal from opiates for a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people, uh, even just mild opiates. I, I know someone, if they took one Vicodin because they, they had teeth ripped out or whatever, four hours later when it wore off, they were angry. You know, not, not really into the addict lifestyle with it. Just that one Vicodin was enough to make them cranky when it wore off. Mm-hmm. Other people can eat them like candy and it doesn't bother them. It's, it's strange. I mean, it's bad for their health, but it doesn't seem to make them cranky with the withdrawal sometimes. Um, that That's another important thing is that addiction is individualized. Yes. I have known people who have picked up and put down heroin, cocaine, meth, prescription opiates without a problem. But never have I met someone who could pick up any and all drugs without finding one that gave them a problem. Oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, everybody's got that one, right? Like that one jacket. Like that's that's it. So, you know, I'm also a disabilities advocate and I deal with people with disabilities an awful lot. And I remember... <laughs> I was at a gun show in Syracuse, New York, and I met a man who was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at birth. And it Good showed. Lord. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, his hands and wrists, and, I mean, they're all curled up, and, you know, he was severely affected for a long time. Oh, man. And we had a conversation, and he was, uh, he was actually selling knives and uh, personal protection, like mace, you know, non-lethal. Uh, we had a conversation and he was on one of those duffel bags and prescriptions, including Oxycontin, fentanyl, Percocet. You know, they give you the whole range eventually if you're able to be justified. Right. Um, what the hell justifies that shit? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Um, you know, and, and we were talking and I run into this a lot. He told me that, and he told me very quietly because cannabis wasn't yet legal in New York. Ooh, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because illegalizing cannabis for 100 years, that got rid of cannabis. That worked real well. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's only been available to anybody who ever wanted it anywhere in the country <laughs> at all times. Yeah. I mean, that. The, uh, the disabled kid could get it in a rural town, right? Um, so he got, on, of his own volition, he got rid of all of his prescription opiates by switching to cannabis. But he also stated he wanted to move to Nevada because of the lack of gun laws. <laughs> wow. Uh, huh. But, I mean, I've known so many people who have had those problems and switched. The, the people who largely uh, don't handle switching cannabis well, uh, no matter what their addiction is to an illicit drug or a prescription drug, 
I've also seemed to have serious alcohol problems. Um, it's that note, I will admit that when I was drinking heavily, if, if I got into it pretty heavy and then smoked some cannabis towards the end of it, I blacked out. Blacked out, did not know what I was doing, did not know who I was, kept going, kept drinking. Uh, you can black out from just alcohol, but for me, adding just a little bit of cannabis on top of that kind of a drunk, uh, it, it just it just flipped a switch. And that, that's not good behavior, right? Right. But those, those are the days you wake up tomorrow with regrets. Where <laughs> yeah. you have those memories that come back slowly over the next two weeks and your regret builds and you're like, oh, God. What oh, do? damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 buddy. That's a hard part to conquer, right? Yeah, yeah, it because is. Because you, you, you get drunk or, or whatever and – then the next day or week, you, you, you have these memories and these regrets of what you did or people tell you what you did and you feel like garbage. And how do you feel better when you're an addict? When you, you go back to your, your alcohol or your opiates or whatever it is you're addicted to because they make you feel good. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. You, you have to learn. I had to learn to accept and deal with the mistakes that I had made and move on. And, and it's the, oh, with, with some closer people that I, I discuss these things with, we call it the downward spiral. Yes. Uh, yes. You, you do a thing and it makes you feel like garbage. And so you do another thing that makes you feel like garbage. And so you just keep doing it, right? Mm-hmm. There you go. And then there's the the aspect of putting one addiction on top of another, on top of another. And, and that's the true, in my circles and the people I know and the addicts that I counsel directly, um, that's what a junkie is. A junkie isn't just someone who, who shoots up heroin or does one drug. A junkie does anything. It's junk. Do it all, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where it gets really difficult because then you have to, if you're really ready to, to conquer your addiction, you have to delineate which one of these things it is that you're so severely addicted to or if it's all of them or, or just a few, you know, you really have to uh, get rid of the ones that are easier to get rid of first. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, man. Prioritization, right? Like figuring out what's what's killing me right now. What which yeah. one is it? Well, and to that note, right? There, there's there's two, right? Um, there's the immediacy, right? I would consider uh, drugs like heroin and meth and crack to be immediacy drugs, right? Yeah. If you're doing those, and you can't stop. That's your first step. Um, yeah. Yeah. If if you're a well developed alcoholic. That's your first step. Um, but if you're multiple things, you have to delineate which one it is that you're having the most trouble controlling and get rid of the ones that you're having the least trouble controlling first. That just makes everything easier. Um, so another thing that really helped me was a clean diet. Uh, believe it or not, sugar is addictive. It has a similar addictive response as hard drugs like heroin and cocaine. Yeah. Um, and 
Now I said sugar, right? Right. Well, what is sugar? Metabolically, it's glucose. Mm -hmm. um, all sugars break down into glucose in your body, and that means grains, pasta, bread. Um, if you can cut those things out of your diet, you will have an easier time, or I did, or some people do, an easier time of um, getting rid of the other habits because that food is creating a similar response, and that food is also not healthy for you. You know, there is one thing that people don't realize about certain drugs is that the drug itself doesn't typically harm or kill the person as much as we think. It's often the lifestyle. Um, are we staying fed? Are we eating healthy? Are we moving around and using our muscles? Are we metabolizing? Are we seeing nature? Are we um, keeping ourselves hygienic? Are we keeping a roof over our head? Are we sleeping outside? Um, the degradation of the body is often more so because of the seeking behavior than the actual drug because people will give up food for their addiction yeah give up shelter for their addiction and i'm telling you if you don't have food and shelter you're not going to survive yeah no i mean and you're, you're bringing up an interesting point there so like um like what i do uh for for work is is i i help get people back on their feet right like um, i work at a nonprofit organization that is recovery centric and um i've been in this field for like the last year and especially but prior to that going to meetings and being involved in recovery one of the first things that that really hits us is like realizing how far we let our physical self slip like how much we weren't doing for that body and you know here in Oklahoma, we have very strict um, clean needle laws. So like you cannot purchase clean needles. And so hepatitis C runs rampant out here. Uh, HIV, the same thing. Um, so a lot of people come in and, you know, it, it's almost a guarantee that if you were an IV drug user, you have hepatitis C because you were sharing rigs, like without a doubt. And yeah, it's a problem. It is. And, you know, the other thing is, whether you have clean needles available or not, um, there are certain points when, you know, if you've been so high for so long, you know, and you're just doing it over and over again, sometimes you don't care to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've known people who have perfect knowledge of hygiene and what they should do in you know, those regards. And yet, in the right situation, if you're just, if you're on a binge, not going to think about whether or not that needle's clean. I, when I contracted hepatitis C personally, I knew I would get it. And I was like, I don't care. You know, it was, I did not have a clean needle. Um, somebody that was a, you know, hepatitis C positive had one. I was like, you know, I need this shot. So it's not that bad. You know, you could justify it away. Uh, insanity, but that's yeah, just, I mean, Slow liver death. That's not a problem. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, hell. Because I'm killing it anyway. That's, a, you know, that's kind of what was going through my head is like, you know. Hell, and this, is a, this is a good point because those who haven't experienced that kind of addiction, look at those who are in that kind of addiction and think that they should just be able to make the logical choice and stop. Right. 
Right. It's, that's not how it is. There is no logical choice in that mindset. Um, I know you're aware I'm also a disabilities advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is the overlap with the physical disabilities, which was the beginning of my problem. But there is also overlap with uh, various spectrum and behavioral disabilities or disorders. Uh, and it's interesting because I can almost tell when someone's body language that's associated with their addiction is actually from a different disorder. Mm, I know exactly what you're talking about, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens with particularly spectrum and and, um, behavioral disorders is they're socially ostracized. Mm -hmm. They're seen as different. They're not accepted. That happens before they become an addict. Yeah. Find people who accept them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, And again, you know, when we're talking about recovery, this is another important point. People flow like water. They go where they're wanted. They go where they feel welcome. They go where they're comfortable. So if you know someone who's in recovery, it's probably a bad idea to look down on them, criticize them, shout at them, lecture them, whatever about their addiction because all you're going to do is make them feel unwelcome and they know where they feel welcome. Are you going to go to the um, casual town gathering where everybody's going to look down on you make you feel like you don't belong when you could just go to the house that sells whatever it is you're addicted to and hang out and feel good and be accepted and have friends. Yeah. Yeah. Right changing your culture is your personal culture if you will is necessary uh, believe it or not crackheads don't get clean in crack dens yep. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want them to stay away from those places you have to make them feel welcome in other places yes yes and, and that that's an issue so I actually counsel someone who's a distant relative of mine. Um, I, I say counsel. He's actually my disabilities aide. And he's got some spectrum disorders that are unaddressed. Um, and he's got, oh, man. You ever meet the kind of guy that can do insane amounts of almost every drug and just handle it fine? Yep. Yeah. Isn't yeah. That crazy? It is, man. And it makes you absolutely jealous too. Let, like, that, that guy does serious math and then just puts it down like it's nothing. What yeah. the hell? <laughs> yeah, they used to bug the hell out of me. You know, the weekend warriors would wear yeah. me smooth out. You know, I, I couldn't get it, man. It's like, how you have some of the bag left? Like, what do you mean you're putting it up? What do you mean you're right. saving it? I didn't get that. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Well, it is true that, I, that he partook in many, many things. His base addiction was actually alcohol. Mm. That was his base addiction. He, could, he That's the only thing he couldn't put down. That's the only thing that he would go out of his way to find. Um, and that was perfectly legal. 
So the base of his problems are with social ostracization, unaddressed disability, and alcohol. These days, those three things are coming in that combination in more and more people. Mm-hmm. Um, this group mentality that's been developed in our society where we have to categorize each other. And you, you see this begin in school, right? The lunchroom, different kinds of people sit together. And, and it progresses. And, and we, we label people. And if you have problems, you get labeled for being a problem, not for having problems. Um, people are not problems. Problems they have are problems. Um, and I'm gonna, you know, it's true that um, those who are quote unquote upper class can can end up with the same addiction as of those who are quote unquote lower class. Um, but I would argue you're probably eating better and otherwise healthier. You're not sleeping on the streets. And I don't like to make that division. I'm not trying to. It's not my point. My point is that we can recognize that the other hardships in our society, our community, the problems are, are leading to this becoming more of a problem. Desperate people do desperate things. Yeah. And when you're in desperate pain, you'll, you'll want it to go away. Yeah. Yes. The last time I was offered a prescription to take home, um, the last time I actually had opiates, I, I had a severe case of appendicitis. It was a terrible ordeal. Um, lots of pain. And they did give me a morphine drip and they were feeding me Percocets, but uh, they did not send me home with anything. And I, I specifically requested that they didn't. Good for you, buddy. But so th- that's where I delineate, right? I mean, if if the opiates have a benefit and there is valid, valid medical argument that they do, particularly in cases of pain so severe that it can cause shock, uh, then yes, we should use them. But I don't agree with this concept of sending people home with a month's supply of 80 milligram oxycontin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a tough sell. And and um, kind of one of the, it, it doesn't treat the underlying problem. You're, right. you're not fixing anything with that, right? You're just, Correct. it's a, it's a uh, ever moving bandaid. And, and when that prescription runs out, now you're, you're addicted and the underlying problem is still there. So you're worse off than when you started, you know. Right. And opiates actually uh, hinder healing. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So remember, I told you I was I was a severely addicted pill popper by the age of sixteen. Yeah. The only time I stopped taking pills was when I had broken bones. Huh. And that was because I recognized a few things. One. When I break a bone, my bone is not the same as your bone. It doesn't set and knit as well or as quickly. It, it's uh, You can compare it to thin chalk instead of bone. Um, and I would later learn after recognizing how it worked uh, that opiates affect your GI system severely. 
it slows down your GI system. And I don't know what your addiction was, but if you're familiar with opiates, you're probably familiar with constipation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you want to talk about a bad day. That's when that, that boy broke loose. Yeah. And, and, and it can be more than just, you know, standard constipation. Yes. You get a buildup of undigested food in areas of your intestine that, that block that membrane on the inside of your intestine. And then you're blocking the absorption of nutrition. Um, when, I, uh, when I kicked opiates for good, um, let's just say there was a lot of toilet time for a few days. Oof. Uh, you know, so the, the way opiates cause that is you have, they're calling it a second brain now. It, it's a certain set of nerves that runs through your GI tract that um, senses and kind of thinks and it also talks to your brain and it, it controls your peristalsis. It tells the muscles that move food through your intestines to do the work they're supposed to do. And opiates slow that down. And that's why you get that buildup in that constipation on top of the dehydration you, you go through. Um, that's, uh, that's going to stop proper absorption and nutrition. When you're healing, you need nutrition. Uh, the food you put in your body gives your circulatory system the nutrients it needs to deliver to the cells that are doing that repair. Right. And I like to illustrate this as a construction site, right? Um, let's say an old building exists. You're going to knock it down. You're going to haul out the garbage and you're going to bring in new materials and build it up. And along the construction way, you're going to also have you know, construction ways to remove. Uh, when you're healing a broken bone, the first thing your body does is actually remove bone at the site. And then it sets to work at knitting and the calcification forms over. And then that part of the bone in the calcification solidifies, gets mineralized, and the structures are firmed up. And then the, uh, the bulk of the calcification, the protrusion, the normal shape of the bone will will usually dissipate, but it doesn't always. Sometimes you're stuck with a permanent calcification. Uh, if opiates are suppressing your GI function, your lung function, your circulatory function, you're putting roadblocks in the way of those trucks, removing waste and bringing in new materials, and construction slows down. Mm. That construction is healing. Um, if your healing slows down, that's not good. Wow. Wow. So I actually learned to stop taking opiates when my bones were broken. Still took those prescriptions, though, because, you know, a few weeks. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the last time I was actually offered a take-home prescription, Lexington, uh, was this beginning period where they were starting to recognize the take-home prescriptions weren't so great. Um, you know, around the time that we realized grandpa and grandma were more likely to become heroin addicts because we were removing their prescriptions and they were on such doses, right? There was a there was a time period in which they were one of the highest groups of new heroin addicts. 
Um, but, you know, good old reliable healthcare system said cases like Tom Cleaner with severe conditions that obviously cause a whole lot of pain that no one should have to deal with. You know, no one should have to feel that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they can still get those prescriptions. And I actually went to my primary doctor with a sinus infection and he offered me OxyContin. Wow. That's messed up. Yeah. First of all, that perspective that I was talking about, I kind of got a little sarcastic, you know, shouldn't have to feel that pain. That's wrong. That's wrong. Pain is a message. Pain is a sense. It tells you what's wrong. So not only did I stop taking the prescription opiates to heal, but in my situation, I have to transfer. I have to move things. I have to go to the bathroom. Um, and if I can't feel that fracture, you know what I'm really likely to do? Make it worse. Mm. Because mm. If, if you can't feel that pain so much, right? and you're trying to do a thing, you, you might just you know plant your arm down to transfer and go right through your fracture. There it is worse. I have done that. Yeah, that's a good point, man. That you you can inadvertently like really further do damage to the injured part because you're not listening to your body. That's you a see, real good you point. You see this with uh, able-bodied people with back problems all the time. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're prescribed opiates and they go back to work whatever heavy manual labor it is they're doing and they, they're not careful because they don't feel it. What tells you to be careful? Oh yeah, it's pain. Um, pain is life. It tells you you're still alive. Heed it. Um, which isn't to say that I want everybody to suffer all the pain that's coming their way. That's not what I mean. But I think this concept that we can deaden all pain with prescriptions is, is terrible. Um, and false and irresponsible. Um, I come from a perspective of where I learned to meditate at a young age. I'm very in tune with my body. When I have a fracture, I can see it in my head. I can utilize that pain as a map. It's almost like a wire diagram on a computer. You ever see those? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are many instances in which I've gone to the doctor with a broken bone, told them where the fracture was, what it was going to look like on the x-ray, and been right. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, if if you're in that kind of, if you're in my kind of situation, right, I mean, think about brittle bones disease, over a thousand fractures by age 16. Is there any reasoning that you can come up with that I shouldn't learn to deal with that? No. Because it's not going to go away. Right. It's going to keep happening. Right. In fact, it's bound to get worse again as I get towards the end of my life, the, the uh, elderly years. Um, what good does it do me to not learn to deal with that situation? Right. And to be perfectly frank with you, this concept that that I shouldn't have to feel pain or that it's such a horrible thing for me. Um, let's talk about broken femurs for a minute. If you break your femur, you should go to the doctor. You should have a doctor take care of it. Me? I said we're a thousand fractures. 16 years of my life. Most doctors 
don't deal with that level of fracturally in their entire practice career. Wow. It's probably severe fractures. Um, I have experience that you're never going to have. I've had to deal with that situation in ways that you never will. Even if tomorrow you were to jump out of your out of a plane without a parachute and survive, break everything, you still will not have gained the same level of experience that I have. And this this thought that uh, my having broken bones is so terrible is ridiculous. I was born with broken bones. I had broken bones before I was born. Uh, there was twenty five current fractures. Uh, right after birth, and, and more that had healed in the womb. And my fracture rate was over 100 a year until around the age of 16. When I tell you that I had over a 1,000 fractures by the time I was 16, what I'm referring to is an instance where a doctor looked at a full DEXA skin, which is like a high-res X-ray, mm-hmm. and he sat down and he tried to count the old fracture sites on my skeleton, and he stopped a thousand. He never told me how far through my skeleton he got. Dude. Yeah. Whoa. Is that a situation that I shouldn't have to learn to get used to? Really? Yeah. yeah. Is that good for me to not learn to get used to that? Um, and this this sounds horrible to anybody who's a bleeding heart and thinks a child should never feel pain. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be real with you, but life is pain. And children, in whatever situation they're in, are supposed to feel a certain amount of pain. Obviously, uh, you know, if, if you see a kid is about to walk out in front of a car, get grab him by his shoulder and you know, prevent him from getting hit. Don't allow him to feel that pain. Right. But if he's running around playing as children do and he falls down and he skins his knee, well, you know, you could rest the knee and, you know, whatever. But he's still going to feel that pain. It's still going to be a learned lesson. We understand pain when we feel it and recognize it and deal with it. We do not understand pain when we mask it with opiates. We do not understand pain when we mask it with hysteria or woe is me syndrome. Um, that does not help. Um, I, I sometimes call myself the worst disabilities advocate for a reason. Um, <laughs> because I tell people that pain is okay. Right. It's not pleasant, but you have to you have to be okay with it. If you're in a situation which you're going to feel it, if you're not, it's going to make you miserable. You're going to become depressed. You're going to become dependent on other substances, likely prescribed, and that's not dealing with your situation, and that's not good for you, and that's not living your best life. Right. Um. So I'm at the point where. So I, you're probably aware I grew up very rural. Hunting is in my culture. It's a thing in my childhood. When when dad or my uncle or my grandfather got a deer, it was a celebration. We all came together as a family, but we were kids, to, to take care of it and put it up for the winter. Today, I, when, in regards to medicine, am typically the family butcher. Uh, and I can tell you that with both of my arms broken, I can take a large quartered deer from carcass on bone to vacuum sealed package in five hours with both my arms broken. That's learning to deal with my situation. Dude, that's metal. 
bro, you're a badass, Thomas. I, it, it, it's man. Not, it's not. It's not. I figured out how to use my arms without putting the fractures at risk. That's it. Okay. Uh, it's it's not like I'm sitting there waving my broken arms around with a knife and no, I'm being very careful. I, I'm right. planting my elbows in certain ways, planting my wrists, and my fingers, and I'm holding the knife in certain ways. And I'm not doing it the normal way. I'm doing it whatever way works and is careful. Um, but I have so much learned experience with it that it just comes naturally to me. It's easy. And I'm, I don't tell stories like that to make myself look, as you said, badass, metal. Um, and, and I get your perspective on that, right? But to me, that's not badass or metal. That's that's life. I mean, that's coming from, look, man, I'm a crybaby, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a big old pansy, Thomas. Like, Jesus, bro, I roll my ankle the wrong way, and I'm it's fucking up my week, you know? Like, it's a wrap, you know? So I, I get it, but you don't have that same experience, you know what yeah, I mean? That is true. That's true. And you have other experiences, and you've experienced your own pains, your own hardships, right? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. that's why you're here today doing this podcast. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I am, as of now, I can't remember if it's, see, that's the great thing. Right? I can't remember how many years I'm sober from alcohol. It's either seven or eight, somewhere in there. Um, I do remember the last time I drank, though. I kind of got to the point where I was just sick of trying to quit, sick of dealing with my slip-ups. Because nobody has to deal with them more than the person who slipped up. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and I kind of weaned myself by, it was strange. As hard as I spent and as long as I spent trying to quit, I finally ended up getting off of alcohol almost casually. Um, which is weird because it was so difficult. But because I had kept trying and, and addressing the issue and thinking about the issues and solving other emotional problems that added to the addictive behavior of alcohol for me, um, I just sort of weaned myself. I'll be perfectly honest, I got into good scotch, which is expensive. And I'm a cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> So when, when you spend $120 on a bottle of scotch, you make it last. Uh, I'm not telling you to do that. Or whatever. Everybody needs to approach their addiction in whatever way works. Right, right. Uh, which is a big problem with our system because they think they can just cookie cutter it. You know? Nope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I actually weaned myself off of alcohol with high class alcohol. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the last time I remember drinking, I had uh, I had a friend who's Irish over for um, St. Patrick's Day dinner. So I corned my own beef. Actually, I think that was medicine. Um, I'm a gourmet cook, by the way. Good diet, good food. It helps you so many ways. Um, and I had one beer before dinner, and I had one beer with dinner, and I hadn't realized it had been actually quite some time since I'd had a beer. And so it was enough to give me enough of a buzz that I was socially uncomfortable because I wasn't used to being buzzed. Mm. And I um, didn't like it. So I never drank again. 
Uh, but I think what I'm getting at with this, like I said, I spent a very long time, starting at the age of 18, trying to quit drinking. I'm 39 now, so that means I, you're talking like 13-ish years. Yeah. But trying to quit drinking uh, before I finally did. And I think the point here is, and you know, we mentioned slip-ups earlier, you know, you're the one that deals with it more when it's your slip-up than anybody else around you. Um, and I've seen this in others. If you slip up, you have to be okay with yourself. You have to still love yourself, and you have to keep trying. Right? That's um, the ticket. Yep. Keep trying. Keep going. If, it, if it's meetings that works for you, keep going to meetings. If it's um, a therapy that works for you, if it's nature that works for you, if it's cannabis that works for you, whatever it is that works for you, or maybe you're still trying to find what works for you, or maybe your motivation needs to be internal. You have other issues in your past to address. You need to keep trying. You need to keep looking for the things you need to fix so that your addictive behavior becomes less driven, right? Less strength to that feeling of got to go get it. Right. And, you know, some people will never become clean completely. Um, what is sobriety, right? Yes. Is sobriety that you never touch your addiction again? Probably not for a lot of people. Um, it might be that you stay away from it enough to stay alive and maybe hold a job or, or um, be a good father or a good neighbor or whatever it is, right? Um, another good thing is finding things to do. Um, helping other people. I've seen that help people battling addictions gives them a reason to stay away from the drug because if they're, if they're high or drunk, it's kind of hard to help people. I apologize if I'm rambling. This is a lot. No. I, I This is the type of conversations I enjoy having um, thoroughly. So I am going to touch on cannabis again because I am not addicted to cannabis. Cannabis is my medicine. Yes. <laughs> Looks good, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. I was 10 years old in 1993. Two years after that incident when I was eight with the codeine. Uh, same doctor who oversaw the prescription of that codeine pulled me aside when my parents were around. You know, and you gotta you gotta imagine I'm kind of a big guy now, right? I got broad shoulders and I'm a little fat. Um But at that time, I don't know how big I would have been, maybe 30 pounds, 35 pounds as an eight-year-old. Small, right? Yeah. And then an electric wheelchair. 1993. Where was cannabis legal in 1993? This Shoot. I have no idea. Nowhere, right? Nowhere. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And my doctor put me aside and he said, you know, these opiates aren't good for you. You should try marijuana. Huh. Think about that for a minute. Huh. As a doctor that just put his livelihood, his income, his license, his ability to practice medicine on the line to tell a small disabled child to go find street drugs, illegal street drugs. 
Think about that. Wow. Why would he do that? Well, let's let's go back in time a little bit. Um, everybody's seen the old movies. The doctor comes to the house with his handbag, right, to check out whoever's ailing upstairs. You know what was always in that handbag? Hmm. Um, cannabis. I'll be. Yes, and if you go back to the 1800s, um, the first person who anyone any which way resembled medical treatment or a doctor on the scene was always a wife or a mother, right? Um, and there were these handbooks, these, these guides for how to use what was available, procedures, herbs, the like, to treat various illnesses. Uh, there was a woman who's, uh, she's, I forget her name, but she's a, a, a popular herbalist and homeopathic doctor. Um, she was studying those old handbooks from the early 1800s to broaden her own knowledge. And what she discovered is that every last one of them talked about cannabis. Huh. So, on that note, I will, I will give you the warning, right? I always give people the warning. <laughs> Wait on us. Cannabis? Uh -huh. It's not 1800s, weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the potency is higher, um, which is great for medical patients who need that higher patient or that higher potency because if you're using it as medicine, you're using it every day, you gain that tolerance and you need something more potent as you go. Um, but if you're a first-time user, do not go out and get that 35% THC cannabis. Don't do mm. it. Stay away from the dabs. Don't need a heavy edible. Uh, find yourself some nice low THC, high CBD flower. That's a good place to start. Um, even just CBD tinctures and drops, if they're sourced properly, are a good place to start. Um, but, uh, well, like I said, I... I grew up in kind of the scene with the alcohol and the opiates and the cannabis. Um, there was a term, and it's called banging somebody, right? Your one friend, you know, he's never done cannabis, and finally decides he wants to try some weed, man. Yeah. Years old, something tries to breathe, <laughs> and, and there's always this one asshole who goes out and he finds the strongest form of weed, whether it's a, a flower or an edible uh, or a concentrate, and, and, he, and he hands it to him and doesn't warn him, doesn't tell him nothing. Right here, do this, right? And then that, that poor kid gets banged and never wants to try cannabis again. Um, I've even seen it happen to, to patients who could really utilize it. You don't give someone the roughest thing you can find first. That's mm. No, um, start slow, start weak, and figure out where you're at. Because different people have different talents and different needs. Uh, I'll tell you what's a trip, man. So, like, Oklahoma, you know, that's where I'm at. Um, we've had medicinal here for a number of years. I have been uh, clean since that, you know, happened. And, you know, my abstinent, you know, uh, recovery is kind of like the, the route I've taken. So, I've never tried it. But it blows my mind that there's so many different available applications and it's such a good thing to see, you know, because when I was smoking pot, it was 
nasty shit. It was the schwag is what we called it, or commercial, loaded with seeds oh, and really? stems. Yeah. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah, man. And, and if it's one in quality, you're paying like triple, you know? Yeah. You ever seen your cannabis in a round bill? Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. I'm finally not alone. You're the first other person I've, I've run into that's seen that. Yeah, I've had that. I've also had um, such compact bricks that, you know, it seemed a little light for what they told me it was. And sure enough, when I got to the middle, there's a piece of barbed wire or something like that. I've had stuff that smelled like diesel fuel. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. um, Sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack you, Thomas. No, no. So, wow, I remember those days. Let's get back to 10-year-old me. (laughs) Okay. Because this is kind of part of that story. Okay. Um, I'm going to make an admission that a politician should never make and that I have never made publicly. <laughs> All right. This, this is going to be a hot episode for you. Um, 10 years old, I was told to smoke cannabis. 11 years old was the first time I was arrested. You know what I was arrested for? What's that? Crimes that I did not commit. What? Crimes that a cop's kids committed. Whoa. And I was given six months juvenile probation and enter another realm of social ostracization. Oh, you're branded a criminal now. Wow. Even, man. even if it's not exercised upon you directly, you, you, you get to look, you know, it's in the paper, where your parents and family know about it and talk to you. And wow, is that really going to stop on your heart as a kid. Um, then, 13 years old, guess what happened? That I was arrested again. For more crimes that those same cops kids committed. Wow. Yep, and another six months probation. Interesting thing is, you know, that I was given six months of probation, juvenile probation. What does that mean? Means you go see a counselor on whatever schedule it is they give you, right? Yeah. Says I went and saw the counselor. First time, counselor asked, "What happened? Tell me about it. Tell me your perspective." I'm an honest person. Told them everything that I was aware of that happened, and I'm not going to go into the details of those stories or name names because it's unnecessary. Everybody's moved on from there. But the important thing is, when I told the counselor exactly what happened both times, they shook their head and said, "You shouldn't even have to." Mm. Um, so 13 years old and twice arrested given six months of juvenile probation things I didn't do while living a life number thousand broken bones by age 16 think about that my life's not easy at this time Going to school full-time, I graduated on time with an advanced regents diploma and extra credits, despite all of that. And, you know, I haven't yet tried cannabis. And here's, here's an important thing that I want people to recognize. I did not technically or actually commit a crime until after I, as a person, was criminalized. Mm. Didn't start smoking weed until after those happened. This after, you know, the, the innocent or naive child's perspective. This happens to a lot of kids. Because, well, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get looked down on. People are going to hate me. 
why shouldn't I do this or do that or do whatever? Right? Yeah. We have that rebellious nature and we do have that failed logic at that age. Why shouldn't I do anything? Everybody's going to hate me anyhow. So I started trying cannabis. Um, right around my 13th birthday, not too long after that, right? Which is not long after being sentenced for that second time. By fall, I was selling cannabis. Ooh. Um, you know what I never got caught for? What's that? Selling cannabis. <laughs> oh, wow. Because I never got caught for any other thing I've ever done after those two false arrests. So you've only been caught for shit you didn't do. Correct. As oh, a disabled child in a power wheelchair. So, Jesus. Hey, you know, I want to I give you this little image that, that this is something that occurred, right? State trippers show up at the house. Knock, knock, knock. Parents come to the door. And state trippers are saying, you know, we're here to talk to your son. He's accused of doing this and this and this. And my parents sit, there's this merchant staring him down. And letting the cops rattle off my name and, and, and the accusations. And I'm behind them, but they can't see, the, the police can't see me. When they get done with this field, and of course, they always send the rookies to do this shit, right? The young guys. Yeah. Inexperienced. My parents parted ways and said, well, here he is. And their jaws dropped and they turned ghost white. They <laughs> what they had said about this 35-pound disabled child in a rickety power wheelchair. Yeah. 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 Now, here's the important part, right? Those poor police officers, right? And I, I pity them, have no choice but to go through with it, right? It's their job. Yeah. You know, they, they're not going to lose their job. It's, it's the law. It's what they're taught. It's the hierarchy. It's the system. It's what they're trained to do. And that they're required to do if they'd like to keep their job. Most people do want to keep their job, right? Um, even most police officers, in my opinion, the ones I know, they don't get into being police officers so they can bust heads. They, they actually start out wanting to help their community. Yeah. But just, just imagine being that police officer and, and reading off those charges and then seeing this little kid that did this and that. I mean, it's pretty comical, man, it to, is. to think it is. about. Yeah. So interestingly, right, I told you, you know, by that fall, my 13th year on this earth, I was selling cannabis. Um, I, would, uh, I would learn a lot of lessons from that how to manage money, how to do good business. Who actually needs the product, right? Because um, I very quickly found the niche market, the medical market in an illegal world, right? Yeah. There was already this nationwide network of people supplying medicinal cannabis to people illegally. And for, oh, geez, 17, 18 years, something like that, I was a part of that. I brought people with cancer cannabis. Not personally and deliberately, but I organized it. I was a part of it. Uh, people with ADHD really love sativa. Uh, 
And, and I found niche markets like professionals who want to be cannabis without having to run into a dozen teenagers, right? Right. Um, that's an instance where you can charge more. Um, it's interesting. I spent a lot of time just brokering or connecting people for cannabis. And you make a little pocket money for it. Mm-hmm. You don't normally have someone admitting to crime that they didn't cut cop for when they're running for office, do you? <laughs> no. No. But, you know, JFK smoked weed. Um, who's that? Uh, Ted Kennedy had problems with prescription opiates. Hell, most of our elites have problems with prescriptions because they can get whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, look what happened to Michael Jackson, right? That, that's a case of having a private doctor who was unscrupulous and money hungry and, and added to, you know, well, hungry for his addiction. Go figure. Um, and, and no oversight, right? Not even people like, because, you know, as an actor, you're put on a pedestal too, and everybody turns into a yes man around you. And nobody's telling you, hey, this is bad for you. Nobody's like helping you. Um, people are just looking for something. And I think that's what happened to him. All the other issues I won't talk about, but as far as his addiction and death, I think that's that's just you know an unfortunate circumstance of being revered mm -hmm. so that you can have whatever you want as long as you pay for it. <laughs> and he he paid for his own overdose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Similar thing happened to Elvis. We hear about the stories of uh, Hollywood and the music industry all the time, right? Um, it's interesting. So I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time helping people who really needed cannabis get cannabis. And you know, let's go back to the warnings, right? There are people who should not use cannabis. I don't know if you've ever run into any of them, but they react yes. to it. Yes, 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 I have. <laughs> If you try, if you try some cannabis, and, and mind you, it should be mild cannabis when you're trying it first time, and you notice that your behavior changes from a bad way, don't keep using it. It's almost like if you have a psychiatric problem, and the doctor prescribes you a psych med, and you react badly to it, the doctor takes you off of that prescription and has you try another one. Mm-hmm. So cannabis doesn't do it for you. Try something else. Uh, I will say those people are actually quite few in between, few and far between, in my experience. But they do exist, and, and we should be aware of it. Um, then, you know, there's the issue. Remember, a few minutes ago, I was talking about how it was in the handbooks for wives on how to treat various ailments, cannabis. Um, it was in the doctor's handbags. It was pretty common throughout cultures, right, that used it, um, subcultures, if you will. And I'm going to compare this to a thing that happened with alcohol. Um, back in the day, they raised the, drink, the drinking age from 18 to 21, right? And they saw harm, death, and even traffic accidents go up when they did that. Why? Why did it go up when they raised the drinking age? 
Well, because you created a separation of generation, right? And anybody who's younger is not hanging out with people who are experienced with the drug. Back in the day, when we were living in the woods, we'd have something akin to a shaman, someone familiar with these things, who taught you how to utilize them and taught you what was too much and when was enough. And, you know, that, that, that point of raising the um, drinking age, that, that took some of that away for some people, and that's why we saw more harm come from it. Mm. But I don't advocate alcohol for anybody. Don't drink. Don't drink. It's only narcotic that's literally toxic to every single cell in the human body. Now, cannabis, when we made it illegal, um, for a lot of people, they lost access to people who experienced with it, particularly if you were younger. When did most people try cannabis for the first time? When they're younger. When they're what younger. Do people need in general in life? Yeah. Guidance. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good point. Really good point, man. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we, these these actions, they sound like they're the right thing to do. If we make it illegal, nobody will ever do it again. <laughs> somebody breaks the law. Right. Uh, and that's not true. Um, we have to recognize that certain, that certain aspects of our humanity are always going to exist. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, what we can also recognize is that we can have cultural solutions to at least a significant part of any of these problems that we deal with. And a lot of that involves community. Something that's happened in the last maybe even a few hundred, but I would say a hundred years. Um, you know, we've become really modernized as a species. I don't know if you noticed, but we have toilet paper now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, our culture has shifted with that dramatically. Our work hours are for the necessity to survive for most people is, is really risen. You know, it, the average two-parent household has both parents working 60, 80, 100, 120 hours a week. Who's guiding their children? Hmm. Who's doing the parenting? Who's giving solid advice? Mm. Who's mentoring? Not anybody who's experienced because they're all at work. Right. Or, you know, otherwise stuck in bad situations. The, the welfare trap is equally as bad as, you know, a system that means mom and dad aren't around. Um, they're equally as bad. So, 13-year-old me selling some weed. And uh, you also quickly realized that uh, people will trade you other drugs for it. Yep. Well, there's another source for prescription opiates. No longer hard to find. For a while, they were, they were less than hard to find, right? Yeah. So when cannabis is legitimate, right? Decriminalized. I suppose even legalized. I have problems with legalization because it still creates a gray market. 
which is essentially a black market, which comes with its own dangers. Um, a legitimate product in a legitimate market does not come with harm hmm. to the degree that illegitimate markets or black markets can. I'm actually a fan of the black market, right? <laughs> because that's how I got my cannabis at the age of 13. Um, and it's definitely, in certain ways, almost an obligation to defy an un unconstitutional law. Really, what it is. I believe it's, it's every, let's say, American's duty to disobey any unconstitutional law that comes into their purview. I think it's literally written down somewhere that we should disobey any unjust law. Mm. Um, yeah, I would, uh, would go on to work for uh, Dan Berman for his bid for the presidential nomination for the LP in 2020, right? And I did some social media and I did some research and I did some writing in that research, right, I found out, well, that's when I discovered that I was 14 when they finally figured out that, hey, children uptake opiates faster than adults, and, uh, you know, adjusting for weight isn't enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a radical concept, right? right well, right. Oh, I mean, they just get all hopped up on sugar to bounce off the walls, but obviously their metabolism isn't <laughs> Oh, I have a lot of pieces, so I mean, I, I've seen it. I know what happens. I was uh, I was a hyperactive child, right? So yeah, I mean, yeah. no, you know, we 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 explore and we go nuts. Um, so the other thing that I learned in the research was in a study that came out of another country that was not restricted in studying cannabis and its effects discovered the CBD mineralizes pulp. Mm. Turtle pulse disease. Wow. Thousand fractures by, by age 16, right? Yeah. CBD causes a fracture to heal faster with more mineralized or better bone at the fracture site than without it. Whoa, man. And our government made that illegal. Wow. Now, how, since you've since you've been um, taking cannabis, have you? How is that situation for you? Has it bettered? So, um, cannabis and one other drug. Uh, I receive a bisphosphonate drug through IV uh, three times a year, three days in a row. Uh, both of them mineralize my bone. Uh, only from the study can I ascertain that likely uh, cannabis, with the CBD and the cannabis, has um, positively affected my bone density and my healing rate. Uh, but I also received another drug tonight. I was 15 years old when I defied the FDA. Yes, I was a 15-year-old pill-popping alcoholic who defied the FDA and received a life-saving drug. Think about that for a few minutes. <laughs> Fucking punk rock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does that look me look great, or does that make our government look that incompetent? 
Oh, that, that, yeah, both. I would say, I would say both <laughs> personally. That's just me though, brother. You know, you know I had to receive the gift of the internet at mm -hmm. age 15 for my 15th birthday. Um, and I came from one of those families. I was just talking about both of my parents were working. Uh, my dad largely worked, worked at home producing food and repairing the house. And I mean, he's the reason that our house, you know, it's still a house. <laughs> right. <laughs> they bought a $16,000 property with a dairy barn, a horse barn, a house on a large house um, in, in 1983. $16,000. It was almost worth that much. Um, no insulation. Uh, everything had to be rebuilt through my childhood. That's what happened. Um, the dairy barn's gone. It collapsed when I was a kid. Um, half of the horse barn is left. It's still used, but um, yeah, he, 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 just because he was home doesn't mean he wasn't working. Hmm. But that meant they didn't have time to look into things like that. They didn't have time to address their severely disabled child's issues themselves. They didn't have time to do that learning. Think about that. Wow, man. Um, but you know, I'm I'm kind of tenacious, and I like learning things. And so, when I got the internet, I found people like me. Um, the Osteogenesis Imperfecta Online Communities. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking because I'm no longer welcoming them. <laughs> I, well, I tell them they can still do things, and apparently that makes me a bad guy. Um, right, right. <laughs> And, and that's because you get sucked into this mentality. Everybody else has about disabilities. You shouldn't have to do anything. Not, no, I should have to do things. That's what keeps me healthy. That's what keeps me going. That's why I am one of the worst cases of my condition with the most improved condition. Wow. I have always done. You could never stop me from doing. I was 18 months old, I think, when I started working in the garden. And that's because my parents were like, oh, shit, if we leave him alone, he can't cause trouble. Um, <laughs> Put him to work. I love it. Yeah. But, you know, when you're when you're poor and you're a small family, you rely on each other. There's, a, there's, there's this camaraderie that's there. And even as a small child, I wanted to be a part of it. I knew recognized that it took work to have food. It took work to be warm. And I watched my family do it. I'm like, I can't sit here and not do anything. That's not right. And, and they quickly found out that uh, if they didn't include me, I'd find another way to cause trouble. Uh, to that note, uh, I've never stood up or taken a step. I got my first power wheelchair when I was four and a half years old. The first time I ran away from home, I was three and a half. Damn. Whoa. Took Tiny off, huh? Child. Very severely brittle. Understood how brittle I was. And I looked out across the lawn and I said, you know, I want to go over there. I'm not allowed, <laughs> but I want to go over there. So I, went. Um, I made it three rural yards away, which is like, um, you know, three, three lawns, three properties. That's, uh, that's like crossing three one acre plots. Right. As a 
maybe 20-pound child who's as brittle as a bag of chalk, uh, who could be picked up by a stray dog, shaken and killed at any moment, and the child who understood all of these things. I wasn't running away from anything. I was running towards adventure, right, little kid? Right. I don't know. Maybe I watched Indiana Jones too many times, something like that. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, now I know that uh, the all-seeing mother was was watching me the whole time, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine the gumption to know how frail you are, how small you are, how big neighborhood dogs are. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, you see deer that can trample you in your yard, you know, on a regular basis, um, and you're just ready to go. Go. So I have a mentality that's a little tenacious. I would say so. Yeah, buddy. Um, so I, I think a lot of my strength, a lot of my fortitude, a lot of my mental capabilities to overcome even my addiction come from Come from a being in a position of family that had no option but to include me or else, right? Right. Uh, or else he's going to cause trouble. <laughs> a lot of memory lanes here, man. So ultimately, you know, I knew what risk I was, I knew how small I was. Still ran away from home. When all of my limbs are broken at several points in my life, I have gotten myself on the toilet and I have taken care of myself. Uh, sometimes with assistance, but uh, you know, I was 15 years old the first time I gained the ability to. It's okay if I swear, right? I mean, I, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Right. I was 15 years old the first time I gained the ability to regularly wipe my own ass. Do you remember being 15 years old? Yeah. Can you imagine what it felt like not being able to wipe your own ass? No. No. You know, you're, you're getting interested in girls. You know, high school's around the corner. I can't even wipe my ass. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things. Nobody wants to rely on somebody else to do. Um, but, you know, that might be a good argument for cannabis having improved my condition because... I got to that point before the other drug, um, which is called pamidronine, by the way. It's a bisphosphonate. Okay. Um, hmm. That just occurred to me. So, do you know what it is to set your mind on something and accomplish it? Yes. Like uh, accomplishing a goal? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're sober now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you, and, and that's one in particular. Uh, for my next question, do you know what it's like to set your mind to something that seems unobtainable and still obtain it? Yes. I'm that guy. If I set my mind to it, I'm going to do it one way or another. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that I'll win my political race, but I will accomplish things through crime. I did the 2020 running for state Senate. 
Um, I can't even list all the people I know I helped along the way. Um, people who volunteered, some of them were young. I grew them as adults with responsibilities and understanding of the world. Um, turned them into professionals. I have helped those with disabilities by meeting them or someone who knew them along the way. That's something I've always done. I did that long before politics, but um, I was in a five-year hole, is what I like to call it. The medical systems were not giving me what I needed, and I was not accepting medical equipment that would lead to my horrible death. Right, right. <laughs> So I was I was working on keeping up that medical equipment that I had and purchased that kind of thing and, and making my home more automated uh, like this. Computer, turn off main light. Hey. Turn on main light. Look at that, man. That's slick. Off. Most people are familiar with what those devices are. There's, there's yeah. many problems with them now, right? But, uh, you know, living in SSI and no longer selling cannabis, I did not have a lot of money. Right. And I was putting my funds between trying to keep the wheelchair going, which probably where it was crowdfunded by libertarians, um, and making my home more automated because there is nothing worse than being physically stationary and unable to turn on or off the lights when you need them on or off. Mm. Um, but you're not 24 hour care is not a thing unless you're in an institution or a hospital. And even then it sucks. So I was, uh, I was preparing. I was quite literally preparing for the end. Damn, you imagine, right? You're in your early 30s and you're preparing for the end of your life. That's heavy. That's um, really heavy. Yeah. So, I mean, long story short, you know, the good thing is that uh, a 20 year old wheelchair that had essentially never been used popped up on eBay and it happened to be exactly the chair that I needed that it was denied by the systems. After having to fly over them, um, and voluntary action gave me what I needed. The government did not. Interestingly, um, voluntary action would not end there. I made some connections, met some people, and uh, the one that I was trying to keep going, I'm sitting in there right now. One that was. Run down, not reliable. I just yeah. took the hill behind my house earlier today. I'm in a rural area. It's not a, it's not a small hill, and it's not paved. Right. Uh, that's tenacity, right? Yes. You know how many people I've run into in those situations that give up and die. So no matter what your situation is, whether it's your your got addiction issues, which I'm sure is is hot for your topic, right? But it can be health issues, it can be financial issues, it can be relationship issues, it can be, can be issues related to prior trauma, whatever those issues are. You know, just don't give up. Remain tenacious. 
One of the best things my father ever taught me, something he said to me. When things get tough, you keep your head up, you put your shoulder forward, and you take things one step at a time. That's important. One step at a time. Recognize your improvements. Recognize your advancements. Recognize the good things you've done and the good things you're doing and the good things you will do. Because that's what will keep you going. It will not be easy. No matter what your problems are, I don't care if it's a, an addiction or a disability or severe death or whatever your issue is, you can solve it yourself by asking for help. That's mm. the important part. Get over yourself. Find those around you. Seek those who like you and will help you. And flow like water, right? Yeah. Find the easiest path towards your goal, not just the easiest path, right? That easiest path is how we end up eating too many pills or drinking too much whiskey or whatever your addiction is. It's not really a path to a goal. It's not an accomplishment. As you said earlier, that's like a Band-Aid. Yeah. Um, heal the mood. And heal the person. Just, just don't ever stop trying. When you give up, no one is going to believe in you. When you don't give up, those who care about you will believe in you. And when you find yourself in the situation, it seems like no one cares about you. You're wrong. You're wrong. Yes. You're wrong. Someone always cares about you. It might be a perfect stranger. And to that note, I met a perfect stranger on, guess what, Clubhouse. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah. Um, he's the reason that the other one is working. He's the reason the crowdfunded chair has been repaired, I don't know, three times now? Um, voluntarily, right? He got to know me on Clubhouse. He knows what I'm doing. He knows my personality. He knows what it is that I want to do in life. He got to know me as a human being, not as a cripple, not as an addict, not as a label, but as Tom. My name's Tom, man. Don't call me anything else ever. Because that will dehumanize me. And when you dehumanize people, you ostracize people, you see how this kind of comes around. Ostracization again. Let's avoid that. And if you if you need help, here, here's the other real big piece of advice that I can give anybody for any problem. If you need help, to hell with your pride, man. Ask somebody. Mm. Um, if you need help with your addiction, ask somebody. If you need help with disability needs, ask somebody. If you need help Rooting your, your shingling your root. Ask your neighbor, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't ask for help, you're not going to get it. In fact, you're unlikely to get anything you need if you don't ask for it in one way or another. Um, if you need income, you ask for it by applying for a job. If you need cannabis, you ask for it by going to your dispensary. If you need toilet paper, you ask for it by going to Walmart. If you need emotional support, you ask for it by forming relationships. 
Um, and that's what we need to bring back to our communities. Our, our, our society, and, and people forget this, our society is statistically the most generous society on earth. Yeah, it really is, man. And, yeah. and we're also damn stubborn to ask for help. Really <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So perseverance and, and, and don't be afraid to ask for help. You know. Uh, so I was telling you about the gentleman who's the reason that I now have two of these working wheelchairs. Yeah. Uh, his name is Matt Lacey. Calling you out, Matt. You're a good person. Um, he was here until today, actually, he left earlier today, came on Thursday, stayed for my birthday along with some other friends, and, um, you know, we ate well, and we had fun tearing apart wheelchairs, fixing problems, solving problems, um, and I have, uh, now I'm running for U.S. Senate in New York, and that is, that is the current main mission, of course, when you're in politics. You run to win, but don't worry about whether or not you think you can win or not. Run to win, because people see that and people believe in it, and that's how you push your issues, and you can win without winning your election. Um, interestingly, one of the things that I brought up every time I sat down with somebody who was seated in the New York State Legislature through that campaign in 2020 was that the Office of Advocacy for Those with Disabilities was nothing but a piece of paper. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, Cuomo had rearranged it, so it was just literally on file, didn't actually do anything. I have dealt with this as as a as an unpaid independent disability advocate. I have dealt with those offices in other states. In Illinois, you call that office and you, you describe a person and a problem with a name and a location, and that problem gets fixed. And then those problems are usually abuse within the systems, you know, someone who's hired to do a job and is just abusive in their job. Right. In New York, those systems are, they don't work. That office did not exist. It's just a piece of paper. I know this because it was in the priorities handbook of any nonprofit in this state that served those with disabilities. They wrote letters and screamed about it and lobbied forever. Nothing ever happened. Interestingly, the minute Cuomo was gone, something happened. Really? Yeah. Um, the office um, of, I believe it's Office of Advocacy for Those with Disabilities. I don't know. They may have renamed it, but it's the same thing. Now it exists. It's a functioning thing now. So was that, was Cuomo intentionally keeping that from happening? Like, Well, he's the one who restructured it, so, you know. Um, wow. Yeah, and of course, you know, he'd have to use the legislature and things like that. Um, but it's essentially his fault. His budgets routinely cut programs for those with disabilities that are working um, so that he can try to further justify his extremely egregious budget bill. <laughs> Dude, what a bastard. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. One of the things he did um, right before the whole pandemic thing happened um, to save money, he cut the CDPAP program budget significantly and other beneficial programs budgets significantly. Now, as a libertarian, I would prefer that we don't need or have any of these things 
funded publicly, but right now we can't just, you know, put that light switch. People will die. As a libertarian, I'm also a humanitarian. And uh, our party sometimes forgets that, or at least individuals do. And, and of course, the outside world absolutely has no idea that humanitarian humanitarianism is libertarianism. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I, I sat down with a member of the Democratic State Committee once who looked at me in the eye over a Zoom conference over an issue that was not at all related to disabilities, attacked me on health care, and proclaimed that libertarians just want the poor and disabled to die. Mm. What? Mm. She, she literally believes that I, as a poor, disabled libertarian... <laughs> wanted the poor and disabled to die <laughs> um but here's the thing right it was it was on a zoom meeting you could see me from here up right i expressed my problems with the systems that i've endured and how things like crowdfunding and voluntary action um worked for me you know what the response was what's that well, well that works for pretty people what? You couldn't see. There's a reason I'm not wearing socks today. Um, you know what you couldn't see on the Zoom video, right? Right. Upside down feet. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I brought the conversation back around to the issue at hand because there were other people there that were kind of upset at that behavior but from this person. Um, so, Here's what I would learn over the next few weeks after that meeting. The person who said that is a former social worker. Cares, oh. cares about people, right? Um, also has a disability, right? Probably kind of indoctrinated a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I showed up at a location where they were doing a thing and she was there. And I, I recognized her from, I don't know, 80 feet away or something. And it's like, okay, I wonder how this is going to go. And I, I immediately figured out how it was going to go. Still one of those things. Oh, not so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and she understood that right then and there, on site, that she was wrong to assume that I was just one of these people that was easy to help or this or that, right? Um, or whatever the assumptions were, but led her to saying that. She changed her mind, she became a supporter. And I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna break the news to everybody, right? This was a Black Lives Matter rally. Oh my God, why did you go to that? You can't support those Democrats, we're libertarian. No, um, look, I'm in Chicago County. Yeah. These rallies were basically old white hippie ladies who thought the 60s were back, right? Right, right. Was throwing bricks or, or setting fires. Uh, it was a pandemic in which the only place you could come outside for was a protest. Right. Of course everybody showed up to these things. Um, now, I'm not going to deny that in other places and in other times, these things got out of hand and you're there are a lot of nuanced reasons to be discussed for that, but I'm not here for that today. Um, the last protest of theirs that I went to 
heavily included disability rights. Hmm. New York uh, is the location of the beginning, the birth, of the disability rights movement. Uh, it began at a camp for those with disabilities not far from Woodstock. Ah, not long after Woodstock. Um, you know what else New York did in 2020? Hmm. Deprioritized treating those with disabilities, not just for COVID, but for anything. What? Yep. Isn't that sick? Dude, that's whack. That is whack. I think it was about a third of states deprioritized creating those with disabilities. You can Google that. There's an article out there somewhere that lists them all. Now I now I remember hearing about like, you know, the COVID. I didn't know it went beyond that though. I did I didn't Wow yeah. man. So while I'm running a campaign for state senate, I'm helping those with disabilities who can't see their doctor solve their problems in ways they had never thought about. I'm not going to go into the details because I don't really want to give medical advice on your show, but there are other ways. And it wasn't all cannabis. Well, believe it or not, there are antivirals and antibacterials available through the food in your diet. Uh, not a COVID cure, no, but if you have other conditions, it can help. If you can't get certain prescriptions for inflammation, there are foods that can help. And so I was giving the best dietary advice I could to a lot of these people. Um, sometimes I was helping them find a doctor that would see them anyhow. It's insane. Yeah. So, you know, no wonder those with disabilities end up with opiate addictions and, and psych med addictions. I'm not against psych meds for people who need psych meds. I'm against psych meds for people who don't need psych meds. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, the difference between care and prescriptions, the difference between care and numbness needs to be recognized today because I don't care if you're doing a street drug or a prescription drug you're trying to numb something because you need to be cared about one way or another yeah yeah without a doubt man and there's one thing that you know applies to whether I don't care what it is if it's addiction or crime or, or whatever your pet peeve is um who does desperate things? Desperate people. That's right. But stop making people desperate. Um, you know, it, it, I, I, I have peers that have been in and out of jail and prison. And I can tell you that they have told me you can get better drugs in prison. And they mean prescriptions that are given. And the fact that illicit drugs still get into prison. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's littered in there, man. Um, what good <laughs> putting an addict in a box in the first place? And secondly, what good is putting an addict in a box which his addiction is delivered to him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preach on, preacher. I don't know. 
It's your show, man. I, I feel like I'm dominating the conversation. <laughs> no, no, man. Like we've uh, <clears throat> we've definitely delved into into everything I was hoping this would be, and then some. So, um, <clears throat> I have an addiction still, and I haven't beat. Okay. And if you don't mind, I need to satisfy it. Okay. I'm, I'm only doing this for two reasons. One, I'm an addict, and two, I want everyone to know that they should not do this. Okay. This is the one thing that I could never shake. And uh, I'll be on camera in just a second. That is not cannabis. That is tobacco. Uh-oh. Yep. Yep. I'm one of those people. I've been trying to quit tobacco since I started it. Yeah, man. I was vehemently against tobacco throughout my childhood, my teens, until I was 21. I actually started smoking tobacco, party life, chasing women, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, isn't that weird, right? No, I mean that that goes with the territory, man. You know. This one though, I tell you what, tobacco is extremely hard to kick. Yeah, it's it's definitely a tough one, man. You know, I I I still I've switched over to the uh, to the vape nowadays, and I'll still enjoy a tobacco pipe or a cigar on occasion, but. Uh, yeah, nicotine is by far the toughest thing to give up. No. That depends, right? I know people who have just put down nicotine. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <clears throat> and just like there was people who was able to, uh, you know, not dive off into the insanity that you and I did, you know, but still do the same things we did. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yes. Keep trying. I'm still trying to quit this. Uh -huh. I'm not succeeding very well. <laughs> but I am tenacious, and I'm not going to stop trying to quit. That's right, man. Well, Tom, you are by far one of the best examples that I think that we have in the Libertarian Party. Um, every time you speak, every time you engage, you do so with such passion, and you are able to meet people where they're at, and I admire that in you, um, and I hope to emulate that in my own way. Um, how can people find you and, and, and support you and, and help you? You can find me on social media uh, for the campaign. You can find me for a personal profile on Facebook. Um, be careful with the friend requests, so I'm all full up, typically. Um, you can contact the campaign through the website Thomas Queter. Dot us is t h o m a s q u i t e r dot us. Um, that's my current campaign website for U.S. Senate here in New York. Um, Chuck Schumer out the window. Defenestration. Remove people from power. Um, look up the word defenestration. It's funny. And yeah, I know that sounds violent. Chuck Schumer out the window. <laughs> <laughs> right, there's an instance in the late 1490s where 
a leader, a ruler, was removed from power by throwing him out the window. And so when you look it up, it, it, the word has two meanings. To remove someone from power and to throw someone out of a window. Um, and, and because his name's Chuck, right? You know, whatever. It's a nice joke. It's stupid, really. But, um, yeah, Chuck Schumer's been in office for over 20 years. Um, he claims to be pro-cannabis, but he's uh, going to try to squash the, what is it, the Move Act, I think, that's getting traction. Yeah. Uh, he's submitting his own legislation just in time for the midterm elections. What's yeah. going to happen in the midterm elections? Do you know? That that move is going to be up for, for election, right? Or the... Uh... Uh, so, if the Move Act ends up squashed, Right. Uh-huh. Computer off. Um, if he squashes that and enters his own instead, his own will come up to vote just in time for the Republicans to take Congress. So that's what happens in every midterm year. Whoever the president is, the other party gains traction in Congress. And so he's basically going to stop cannabis by promoting cannabis. So in the end, he could say, damn those Republicans, I'm pro-cannabis. Um, and that'll what help. Piece of shit. So like, yeah. Yep. Wow. <laughs> this is how our Congress behaves. This is how they behave. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. And like the issue we run into out here, um, you know, uh, our, our pot shops here in Oklahoma have to utilize cash-only business. You know, mm-hmm. because of because of the way that it's scheduled, and so make a target. Yep, burglaries uh, run rampant up here, man. On top of that, they can't utilize the same business tax write-ups that other similarly sized businesses get. So it's harder for them to do business. The price of the legal product then goes up. Add regulation on top of it, it goes up. Add taxation on top of it. It goes up, and the fact that possession is now legal, um, you've got a gray market, which is really a black market, which is dangerous, and now we have people putting fentanyl in pot. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, man. Sorry, my ashtray's over here. No, you're good, Tom. Well, Tom, man, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Like I said, dude, you've got such a phenomenal story, and – you have an open invite anytime you want to come on, man. I, it, it's been a pleasure. All right. You know, anytime you want me, I'll come. How about that? It sounds good, man. All right, buddy. Well, you have a good evening, Tom. You too. Thank you again for having me. Anytime, brother. There you go. Thomas, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, guys, please reach out to him, especially look up that website. I'll have it in the show notes page. If you have the ability to to pitch in and help with the campaign, the dude runs a powerful, powerful campaign. And he's got a great voice, a great message. Please help the man out. And um, yeah, thank you guys for tuning in for another week. Uh, once again, I apologize this got out to you guys so late. But uh, you know what? It is what it is. And um, without really dragging this on too much longer i know this was a longer episode this is the song of the day it is the descendants tried and true man you you if you like punk you love these guys and this is a song called hope um i enjoy 
Very much so enjoy this song. I equally enjoy the Sublime cover that came later on in life. But you know what, man? The original is always better. So, uh, yeah, guys, thanks a lot for tuning in. I love you all so much. And we will see you next week. Fuck!